Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, the threat of economic ruin. That was a dangerous moment for Canada, I felt. Very, very dangerous. The Deputy Prime Minister testifies before the Rouleau inquiry, arguing jobs would be lost and Canada harmed economically if the Emergencies Act was not invoked. Also... Just trying to figure out how I get from A to B, because I'm close to starting to do that. The Justice Minister invoked solicitor-client privilege, why one group thinks that decision has hobbled the Commission. And... We will be investing another $1.6 billion over the next five years. We'll get reaction to the government's new climate adaptation strategy. Does it do enough? This is Primetime Politics. Hello, everyone. I'm Michael Serapio. A dangerous moment for Canada. That is how the Deputy Prime Minister described the blockades that prevented trucks from crossing the Canada-U.S. border last winter. Appearing before the Emergencies Act inquiry, Christian Freeland says the protests that prevented international trade had investors and U.S. policymakers questioning Canada's reliability. And knowing that jobs and investment to Canada were on the line, that, she says, is when she realized the protests had to come to an end. Take a listen to this exchange from today's testimony. The reputation of Canada is at risk. <laughs> Just spent a lot of time in the U.S. last week, and we were being called a quote-unquote joke by people. I had one investor say, I won't invest another red cent in your banana republic in Canada. That adds to an already tough investment perspective on Canada. Did that have any impact on that? the banana republic idea? I mean, it's hyperbolic. When I heard that, I realized I'm the finance minister, I'm the deputy prime minister, I have to protect Canadians. I have to protect their well-being. It's being really, really damaged. With that, let's bring in our journalist panel tonight. Once again, joined by Joanna Smith, the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Canadian Press, and Chris Nardi, parliamentary reporter for the National Post, who is covering the inquiry. Good to see both of you again. You too, Michael. Joanna, I'll get you to start us off because, you know, as the Deputy Prime Minister was giving her testimony today, she, she said the convoy was a personal threat for many Canadians because it threatened their economic security, which seems to be a, another layer of how the government is defining a threat to this country. Uh, what did you make uh, of Christian Freeland's economic argument? It was interesting. She really raised some of the points that her deputy minister raised last week, which of course makes sense they would be aligned on this. But she was testifying that the protests, you know, really risked exponentially escalating an economic uncertainty that Canada was in at the time. It coincided with a period of fragility, she said, for the Canadian economy where there were major supply chain disruption issues. There were protectionist American plans at the time to bring in a tax incentive for American-made electric vehicles. And I know the Canadian cabinet, many levels of government in Canada, were putting on a full court press to do everything they could to convince the U.S. government and Congress to, to not go that way. I know um, they, they tried everything. They were saying, you have to view this as 
North America made, the, the future of the electric car industry and, and all the sort of, um, you know, critical mineral and, and battery and everything related is a big part of Canada's sort of long-term plans for, you know, transition economy, uh, you know, part of their net zero plans. So the U.S. messing that up was a really big deal and they really needed to have goodwill and good faith and good relations with the U.S. Um, coming at a time where, you know, coming after four years of Donald Trump, where that relationship was was really strained, um, Freeland had played a really big role in that relationship um, with, with with the Trump government. And also, um, this was also happening at a time when it was pretty clear that Russia was set on invading Ukraine. And as we all know, Freeland has also played a big role in Canada's response to that war. So these things were sort of top of mind. Um, I think you can understand how it would be top of mind for her. And this is her portfolio. And she said, you know, finding out the White House was very, very worried about this was what she called a dangerous moment for her. And really, her, her argument was bolstered by messages that she was receiving from the banking industry, investors, uh, even from a senior economic advisor uh, to the U.S. president. Uh, Chris, talk to us about what was shared on those fronts with the commission today. Probably the most interesting part that we've seen today, quite frankly, Michael. And so it'll start with this one call she had on February 10th. So that's about four days before the Emergencies Act was invoked. She sets up a call with one of Biden's top economic advisors. His name is Brian Dees. Uh, and on that call, Brian Dees makes it abundantly clear that he's now realizing how interconnected the Canada and U.S. economies supply chains are, especially. And he is not saying that in a good way. He is saying that in a listen we have been you know flirting as you know with some very protectionist measures uh, the government had been receiving pressure from both democrat and republican lawmakers to increase protectionism in the united states and now suddenly a crucial trading partner canada is showing that they can't keep the border open and this supply chain is too interconnected to our possible liking that's the us's perspective and so Freeland said she left that car, that call very worried, very, very worried, because this could be a new excuse that any U.S. lawmaker could use to basically bolster protectionism in the United States. And a few days later, she has that call that you just referred to with, you know, the CEOs of the large, the, the six large banks in Canada. And they basically reiterate the same thing, that Canada has a huge risk for its reputation through these, particularly the border blockades. And also, they're really worried that they can't act under current legislation fast enough against um, uh, organizer, convoy organizers funding uh, in order to, you know, es essentially cut them off from their liveliness. So she's getting a lot of pressure both from Canadian industry and from the U.S. to put an end particularly to the border blockades so that they don't lose crucial trade elements to the United States, to, uh, to basically the United States bringing in protectionist measures and cutting Canada out of the equation, particularly in the automobile industry. Mm -hmm. Now, the Deputy Prime Minister, uh, she was taken on uh, for condemning authoritarian regimes, but at the same time justifying an act that limited protest in this country. And again, she went back to, the, to an economic argument. Let's take a listen to that part of uh, today's testimony. Surely you agree that in Canada, which is a democracy, the right to protest, the right to demonstration must be sedulously protected and that economic security does not trump those rights. What was undermining 
of Canada's economic security sufficiently dangerously that I believe we needed to act and it was the right thing to do was that our trade was being stopped and was being seriously blocked. And I was very worried that that was handing arguments to US protectionists who were already on the move and that had that relationship been seriously damaged, that would really hurt Canada. Now, of course, that goes to what both of you have been talking about here, this economic argument. But I guess, Joanna, the, the challenge here really for the government is uh, that the CSIS Act does not mention economic security as a grounds for national emergencies. It doesn't. You know, that definition includes espionage, sabotage of Canada's interests, foreign influence, act of serious violence against people or property of political, religious, ideological objectives, the violent overthrow of the Canadian government. Listen, she's she's making a political argument, but she's not really making a legal one. And, and she was kind of asked about that. Um, and she was also asked whether the Liberal government's decision to use the Emergencies Act was correct. Like she she said that it was correct. Sorry. But she re she refused to detail whether the economic harm that she was talking about actually formed the basis of the government's decision. She kept saying, I'm not I'm not a lawyer. You know, she relies on the judgment of officials who advised the government on the expert legal advice. But as we know, as we discussed yesterday, especially in the context of David Lametti's appearance and his claiming of solicitor client privilege, that analysis is missing from public view, at least for now. It's a missing piece of the puzzle. We don't actually know uh, what the analysis by the Department of Justice was. We know that the government, you know, based on the opinion and what we heard from the clerk of the Privy Council and the National Security Advisor, thought that maybe the CSIS definition was too narrow. Um, and everyone's pointing to this legal analysis that the commission has not seen. So that, so again, two things we don't know is how strongly the economic harm Freeland talked about was actually part of the decision and what the actual legal analysis that everyone says the decision was really based on actually yeah. said. In fact, uh, coming up right after this, we're going to speak with that lawyer that you saw in that clip because she's with the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. We're going to talk a, a bit about uh, the, the solicitor-client privilege and the impact that has on this commission. But really, what this all sets up, the Deputy Prime Minister, and we should note after her, uh, members of the PMO staff, this all sets up tomorrow's final day of testimony, and that will be the Prime Minister. So, Joanna, what will you be listening listening for as Justin Trudeau takes the stand. He ultimately bears responsibility for the decision to invoke the Emergencies Act. He, I think, would be Canada's leading expert on why that decision was made, having really been the final one to make it. So I'd like to hear, I'm looking forward to hearing as, as clear an articulation as we can uh, from the man himself why that decision was made. I'm also just peripherally interested in whether he's going to be introspective as he sometimes is, um, perhaps not in this highly charged forum about whether he played any role um, in inflaming tensions at all with some of his rhetoric. Was that off the cuff or was that deliberate? I think a lot of, at the end of the day, if the commission finds the Emergencies Act was justified, I, I wonder if they will also talk about it only became justified because up to that point, these protests had been mismanaged so badly by everyone responsible that people felt as if they were left with no other choice. But maybe there are many 
different things that could have been done, dozens or thousands of decisions that could have been made differently that that would have prevented its its necessity. Well, well, absolutely. We we've certainly heard uh, time and again stories of chaos and confusion. So, so Chris, what will you be listening for? What will you be watching out for as Justin Trudeau testifies? So this might sound odd, but I'll be a little bit less attentive to what he's saying. But what I will be looking for, too, is all the the documents that we get in the background, particularly possibly text messages and emails he sends, because I have never seen either a text message or an email that the prime minister has ever sent. Uh, but if history in, in this commission demonstrates anything, is that we will see text messages. We've seen them from almost everyone else, including his top ministers and his chief of staff, Katie Telford, who's testifying tonight. Um, so so I'm actually, I really want to see what he's saying in the background during these discussions leading up to the Emergencies Act on February 14th. What's he sending to his staff? What's, what is his staff telling him and how is he responding to that? What tone does he use? Uh, you know, Joanne I, I was talking about how he can be introspective sometimes on stage. Uh, I too would love to hear that tomorrow, but maybe we'll get a glimpse of that in the documents behind the scenes. Um, so I'll be actually listening, watching very closely for that, obviously listening as well, but um, Sometimes what we've been getting in the background and that we then can report in our stories is just as interesting or even more interesting than what's being said on the stand. Absolutely. And of course, such an important day, given the fact that it will be the prime minister testifying. So, of course, we'll have full coverage here on CPAC. But for tonight, Joanna Smith of the Canadian Press, Chris Nardi from the National Post, really appreciate our time once again. Thank you for tonight. Now, yesterday we heard from the Justice Minister David Lametti, and while he stated the Emergencies Act was not limited by the CSIS assessment for a national threat, he did not share the exact legal advice he gave to the Prime Minister. Instead, he invoked solicitor-client privilege, which led to this exchange with Justice Rouleau. The job that, that uh, the Commission is to do is to look at the, the decision by Cabinet and as was mentioned by uh, Commission Council, there's an issue of the reasonableness of it. And uh, uh, I'm having a little trouble, and I don't know if you can help me, how we assess reasonableness when we don't know what they were acting on. And do we just presume they were acting in good faith without knowing the basis or structure within which they'd made that decision. And you know of what I speak, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think uh, we have done our best to provide all the information we can. The, the Section 58 report effectively gives you the conclusions that we got to. Now, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association is taking issue with David Lametti's approach. And joining us right now is Eva Krajewska. She is counsel for the CCLA. Eva, thank you for joining us tonight. Hi, Michael. Nice to see you. Now, clearly, uh, you've said so in, in statement, at least the, the organization has, that you are disappointed by the Attorney General's uh, decision to invoke solicitor-client privilege. How does that hamper, in your opinion, the work of this commission? So there have now been a number of ministers and uh, Jody Thomas, the national security advisor, who all uh, mentioned in their testimony that when they were deliberating on whether or not to invoke the Emergencies Act at cabinet and at the IRG, they considered a legal opinion that they received from the DOJ. And uh, they've claimed solicitor-client privilege over that legal opinion. And what's all, so that's part one, but part two is 
the way that all of these witnesses have justified the invocation of the Emergencies Act is by stating that they they received a certain legal view or legal opinion of how to interpret the CSIS Act. So in order to invoke the Emergencies Act, part of the legal test is that cabinet has to be satisfied that there is a threat to the national security of Canada as defined in the CSIS Act. And that's become a real point of contention during these hearings because a number of uh, people have kind of spoken to that interpretation. But we don't actually know what the DOJ said to cabinet. We don't know what DOJ advised. We don't know how they interpreted that. And so when Commissioner Rulo is saying, are we to take it on good faith that you received an opinion that justified this invocation? You know, are we just supposed to take that at your word, right? Or did the DOJ say, well, there's lots of risks with this, right? There's lots of risks, and this is the political risk you're taking and doing this. So it it does raise a very big question because the commission, the sorry, the, the ministers are relying on this to say that they acted in good faith, but they're not giving it to the commission or the public for the public and the commission to be able to assess whether cabinet was actually acting in good faith. Okay, but correct me if I'm wrong here. Does it matter at all that we heard from Lametti yesterday that that the act should not or is not limited by this uh, CISA's definition of a threat uh, to the country? It is. It, he agrees that it is. He, agree, he absolutely agrees that the act says by incorporation that it's a threat to the country. He agrees with that. The issue, the dispute is he says it's not CSIS who assesses the threat, it's the governor and council. Okay, that's a, that's a legal argument. But I think the question is, is it still the same threshold? Like he's saying the CSIS act says there's a threshold before you can conduct surveillance on Canadian citizens. And we would say whatever that threshold is to conduct surveillance on Canadian citizens, it must be as high or higher if you are going to be invoking the Emergencies Act in order to suspend civil liberties across the country. Now, can't the Commission decide if a legal bar is met just by looking at the circumstances as outlined by ministers, if not the exact wording of the DOJ's advice? Well, that is the position that they are being put in, which is, you know, you're going to have to just rely on the evidence that's put forward. But the commission, sorry, the DOJ and the government have also waived a number of privileges. So they normally would, normally cabinet confidence would cover all inputs that went to cabinet. And they waived that uh, in order to, uh, to, enable the work of the commission. So, you know, it's interesting that the DOJ has chosen to waive some privileges in some circumstances, but has decided not to waive other privileges in other circumstances. And they are, you know, in my mind, cherry picking some of this. And, you know, they assert privilege over some of Lametti's testimony when they feel like they don't like what he's saying, but then they let him provide legal views and legal opinions on other parts of his testimony. So what's the practical impact then? Given that this is the tactic that the Justice Minister has taken to, 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 to essentially invoke solicitor-client privilege, what's the practical effect on the final report, do you think? I think we'll, we're going to see what the effect is. We're going. The commission, you know, may they, the commission can 
write it in a way to say, you know, based on the evidence we've heard and based on what we were able to access, these are our conclusions, right? They, they can say based on what we've heard and what we were able to access. Um, so that is that is the that is the implication. I'm not sure. But an know, incomplete picture. Somebody, but an incomplete picture. Your fear is. It may be. They it they could say the commission could say. You know we we, you know we are disappointed or we felt like they should have waived this privilege or provided us with this legal opinion on the basis that they've been relying upon it. And there is there is law to support that. There is law to support that if you go out and. You know, rely on the legal opinion that you've potentially waived that solicitor client privilege. Ava, thank you for this. Really appreciate the time tonight. Thank you, Michael. Bye bye. And a reminder we will continue to have coverage for you of the Public Order Emergency Commission. You can see it right here on CPAC. The Prime Minister appears tomorrow. You can also tune into our live stream of each day's testimony on our website, cpac.ca. And it is there where the full proceedings will also be archived and be made available for you. Critics have been quick to point out flaws in the federal government's new climate adaptation strategy. Released today in Prince Edward Island, the plan has already been criticized for lacking funds and specific targets. But it does set aside over a billion dollars for a national strategy to take on some of the more deadly challenges of climate change. That includes floods, extreme heat and wildfires. Take a listen to Minister Bill Blair, who made the announcement today for the government. We will be investing another $1.6 billion over the next five years to build climate-resilient communities and to support a strong Canadian economy. Now, this is not just the, simply the start. And in fact, it's in addition to, to more than $4.6 billion, excuse me, billion dollars that we've in, invested in ongoing adaptation measures since 2015 and a total of over $8 billion since 2009. We have to confront climate change and take real action to slow down its impacts. But we also recognize those impacts are right, happening right in our country right today. We saw in, in, in Fiona, we saw in the terrible floods in, in British Columbia, we've seen in wildfires across this country. We need to, to, to act now. With her thoughts on the government's plan, we're now joined by Sarah Miller. She is with the Canadian Climate Institute. Ms. Miller, thank you for being with us. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. I want to begin here with the spirit of the plan because uh, I, when you look at it, there are targets, there are some dollar figures, not really hard numbers when it comes to those targets. So are you pleased with what you're looking at right now? Mm -hmm. At a high level, I would say um, today's plan is a major step forward uh, in adaptation planning in Canada. And yeah, I'm very pleased um, about what uh, about what the government came out with today. I think it um, turns Canada from being a real laggard on adaptation planning at the national level to catching up with our peer countries around the world. So it's a good day um, for adaptation policy in Canada. Now, is it the legal requirement that, the, that, that there will be targets met? Is that what you're particularly happy with? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are a few different elements that I think make this plan um, particularly strong and set us on a good foundation uh, for more effective action going forward. I would say the setting of medium-term outcomes, so moving away from a tendency that we've had to date to really look at long-term aspirational goals but leave out the more medium-term steps, 
Um, that's been being addressed now with this strategy. So we're starting to see shorter term outcomes and particularly we're starting to see um, the government has proposed some concrete targets with sp specific percentages for um, changes that they want to make as well as specific dates. So that's a major step forward uh, in terms of our ability to move strategically and to measure how we're doing down the line. Mm -hmm. Now, the federal NDP, uh, they've responded to this plan. They say not enough money is being committed uh, today to really make a difference. They say only about a third of what's actually needed is what the government is proposing. Are you worried uh, that the government is not committing enough funds to this? Mm -hmm. I think funding is, is only one part of the puzzle here, and obviously it's an important part. Um, but if, as the minister suggested today, this funding that was announced is truly, you know, a down payment on future funding and, and meant to kind of kickstart some of these more ambitious actions, then I think that's a good thing. But yes, we need to see more, more investment, not only from the federal government, but from all levels of government in Canada uh, going forward. Um, but one of the important things about having a strategy like this is it allows any amount of funding um, to be more strategically allocated and to have more of a line of sight on how well that money is being spent and whether we're hitting the outcomes that we want to hit. So no amount of money in the world without that kind of foundation is going to be as effective as it could be in improving resilience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But that said, you know, the, the money announced today, it, it's what, $1.6 billion. That's the commitment. And that commitment comes as the healthcare system struggles to meet basic needs when Canadians are struggling to deal with affordability, many asking for more government help. How do you convince Canadians that these are worthwhile investments to be making? Absolutely. Uh, one thing I would say is that it sounds like a lot of money, um, but actually what we've found, and we've done some research on this recently, is that it costs a lot more not to make these investments. So we found that for every dollar invested in proactive adaptation, we can expect to save between 13 and $15 in total costs down the line. So really it's a story of making these investments making sure they're made on good data and that there's a good system for tracking you know, progress and ensuring accountability. But we need to make these investments to be able to avoid the worst costs that we can expect from climate change down the line. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it's, it's an important moment um, to look kind of beyond the immediate term and think about the years and decades ahead and what we can do to protect the economy and to minimize the impact on households from climate change. And I guess the, the projections that you're sharing there is based on the cost of, of uh, climate impacts already. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and we know that there are already major climate impacts starting to happen and starting to take a toll um, on Canadian households and on the bottom line of governments. So we have recent modeling that suggests that as soon as 2025, we can expect $25 billion in losses um, compared to a no further climate change scenario in the 10 years from 2015 to 2025. So it's already a significant amount of money. Um, and we find that if we don't take further measures to adapt and also to reduce emissions globally, um, that we could be looking at costs in the range of $100 billion and potentially up to you know half a million jobs lost in Canada by the mid-century. Sarah Miller, really appreciate your thoughts on this. Thank you for the time. Thanks for having me. And that is our program for tonight. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. We'll see you again tomorrow.